We're back into Revelation 16 this morning. We're back into Armageddon. We left a lot of details on the map last week and things hanging, and I'd like to kind of bring it to some semblance of resolution today, more or less. If you don't mind, turn with me to Revelation 16. Let's just get it on our mental map and uh, figure out what the heck John's talking about here, right? So, chapter 16. Here's where I'm going to cue in. It's verse um, 12, if my eyes are not deceiving me, on the two-point font. It's the sixth angel. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, eastern border of the Roman Empire. And its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east, classic enemies of the Roman Empire. Then I saw evil spirits, three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet who's the beast of the land. That seems to be the easiest equivalence. These are, or they are, spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Jesus says, Behold, I come like a thief, Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may be, uh, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's that's what's situating this. Let's conceptualize what's going on. There is this this great battle. Everything is building. It's culminating so to speak. I don't know why I got that Led Zeppelin song, Levy. Um, you know, if it keeps on raining, the levee's going to break, going through my head right now. But that's kind of the idea. It's, it's heaping up. It's heaping up. It's heaping up. And there's going to come this breaking point. And this breaking point is defined as this last great battle. And it's a battle that the, the demonic forces, the dark forces of this world are, are building and culminating. They're, 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 operating in the kings of this world. They're operating in the forces of this world. They're getting behind the systems and governances and politics and machinery and culture and all that we've seen in Revelation so far. There's, there's more than just human evil going on here. There's spiritual forced evil behind this human evil, almost using human evil as, as, as their puppets. This is the picture that John has been inviting us into. And it's culminating, and it's going to culminate in this great battle that it says that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 60-second review of last week. Here's the Greek for Armageddon. We saw that uh, in English it would be pronounced Har-mageddon, and we played off a lot of the Hebrew idea that it is a compound word in Hebrew, Har meaning mountain, and Megiddon, a little bit of debate here, but possibly a place in Megiddo. So here is Megiddo. It is a uh, plain area, kind of like central Illinois, that you'll find in Israel. But there in the middle, you do find this, quote, mountain. And I say mountain in quotes because it's not an actual mountain. It's a tell, T-E-L. A tell is a successive um, set of archaeological layers that keep getting built up on top of each other until they kind of well, make a mound. The idea behind it is that someone built a civilization, a city, a town, and then over time the town falls into disarray or more likely gets attacked and overrun and raised. And then years or decades later someone comes by and goes, hey look, 
let's rebuild the town. And here's a half-built town, because a half-destroyed town is a half-built town, right? And so they would build up on top of it. And that keeps happening over the centuries. And this has been a place where a lot of major battles have happened since at least 1468 B.C., when um, uh, Pharaoh Tutmose III, you could hear the name Moses in there, but uh, Pharaoh Tutmose III came and invaded Canaan. And ever since then, it's been just kind of a bloodbath zone. So maybe Harmageddon is mountain of Megiddo. But we left it at this layer last week of going, huh, if it is, it could just be drawing on the imagery of this great battle site to help us inform and think about the great battle that's to come. Maybe, maybe. What I'd like to do today is throw a different log on the fire. And again, I could go a million miles deep into this if it's interesting, but I've got to guard myself about taking you into the weeds too deeply that you're like, I've ceased to care. So kind of guide me in that, um, in, in where this resonates in your your field of vision. And I just kind of spend more time here because Armageddon is one of those things that's found its way into pop culture. People who have never read the Bible or never heard of the book of Revelation still have heard of Armageddon, right? So if we go with what we've talked about so far, mountain of Megiddo would make sense. Here is another option. And then it quotes from Zechariah, and he has the weird spelling of Megiddo as Megiddo. But we saw that the battle here is in Jerusalem, not Megiddo, or Megiddon, as it would appear in Hebrew of Zechariah's text. Um, so Megiddo is being used analogously or as an example of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So let's go here. It's Hebrew, right? And the Hebrew is being brought into the Greek revelation, uh, into the Greek language in Revelation, right? So... How do you transliterate the Hebrew letters that are arguably standing behind Megiddo into Greek? It's a reverse process because we have it in Greek. So if I've confused you already, let me hop back. Right? There we go. That's what you see in Revelation. It's in Greek. But John says it's in the Hebrew language. So... How are these Greek letters drawing off English letter or Hebrew letters behind them? Whenever you translate into another language or bring into another language, you always struggle with that. This is true in English. Like, like do you put an E or an A when you come across something, right? Because sometimes it's like, oh, it feels like it's an eh sound, but like, what if it's silent? Do you bring that letter E in at all? Do you bring in the letter S or C? Both can make the S sound. Have you ever noticed how there's like 482 spellings of the word Hanukkah? How do you do it, right? Because sometimes languages have collections of letters where multiple letters will work for the same sound in the receptor language. Are you with me? Did you follow that? So, that is an issue with Har-Mageddon. Well, the classic way people do it, if you're looking at the left hand of the screen, you're seeing Hebrew letters. And then if you're looking at the right hand of the screen, I gave you their closest English equivalent. 
If you're looking at the top, you have Mame Gimel Daleth. M G D. All right? Now, what's important to know is that in Hebrew, they do not print vowels. The entire alphabet is consonants only. You are expected to know the vowels and just kind of do it. And you go like, how do they do that? Well, they've done experiments with this in English, and it's amazing. You can take all the vowels out of a paragraph and read it just fine. Um, sometimes there's ambiguity, but often context erases it. So a lot of people just go, well, yeah, that's the natural m, g, d letters. And so m, g, d, and then Megiddo, right? You just fill in the i, e, o, Megiddo. But there's another way that it can be done, and it's the way underneath. Mame, ayin, daleth. Those are the three letters. And if you're looking over in English, you're going to see M, but then an apostrophe, and then a letter D. Why an apostrophe? It's because of the odd way that the word ayin tries to get used in English, the letter ayin. So the middle Hebrew letter is ayin. Say ayin. A-Y-I-N. Great Scrabble word, by the way, and it is a legitimate Scrabble word. Okay? What sound does ayin make? Well, technically, it is the sound that a camel makes when it spits in the back of his throat. And I'm not even making that up. That sounds so made up. And, and like, truth is better than fiction any day. So, it comes out in English or in receptor languages, it should like this. It's like a glottal stop, sort of. Give me a good... Okay, it's not... That's a different Hebrew letter, pronounced cheth. This is ayin. Okay, so you're like, well, what does this have to do with Megiddo, right? What does this have to do with anything? Well, let me show you how it gets brought into the English language, and I'm going to do it through a famous pair of cities. Sodom and what? That's what you say in English. Sodom and Mora. Because it doesn't start with gimel, as you would think from English with a nice ga. It starts with an ayin, which... Truth be told, most people who get a year of Hebrew just make it a silent holder, but uh, technically should be mora, all right? So, knowing that it kind of works in a G spot in, uh, that, that did not come out right. <laughs> in a sense, it's funnier than, yeah. Um, if it comes out in where the gimel letter would hold, um, yeah, I, I'm derailed. It's just... Uh, <laughs> it could be Mame, Ayan, Daleth. Why is that significant? Because you see the Mame, Ayan, Daleth combination used in other places in the Bible that might also work. And let me give you a prime example. Here's from Isaiah 14. The passage itself is very telling because the passage is all about condemning the king of Babylon for setting himself up like, 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 like a god. 
And in fact, a lot of the language this will be, that will be used for the king of Babylon here in Isaiah 14 is reminiscent to Satan falling from his heights. He's given this, this, this divine, demonic, almost language, if you will. And it's a classic text where people in like, like the Christian tradition will get a lot of their devil terminology from. Um, I'll, I'll translate something in Latin in a minute and you'll see what I mean. Talking to the king of Babylon, Isaiah prophesies, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now he's talking about the king of Babylon, but the idea behind it is that the king of Babylon has set himself up in his arrogance and his pride to think of himself like a god. And so Isaiah's playing on that. And he goes, oh, how you've fallen from heaven. And he calls him the morning star. By the way, morning star is Venus. If you care to know, it, it has a kind of godlike myth in the astrology world. Um, Jesus is actually called the morning star on occasion. Um, it's the idea that, boom, you are the blazing light of the heavens that we see right before dawn. He calls him the morning star. Do you know how morning star will get translated into like KJV will be things like day spring. So classic Luke 1 Christmas text where, uh, and, and the day spring will appear from on high, right? Here's how, um, for lack of, of, of a better way of doing this, here's how morning star or day spring gets translated into Latin. Lucifer. Have you ever heard that one before? Lucifer just means light bearer. How you have fallen, Lucifer, light bearer, morning star, whatever you want to say. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth. You once laid low the nations. Behind the castigation on the king of Babylon is this metaphor of the fall of the great spirit of old, Lucifer, if you will. It's, it's kind of how it's being used. I know I'm opening up a lot of can of worms. Just keep going with me. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. All right? The king of Babylon, who's this about? But you can certainly see within this an idea of, of, of Satan, right? Who seems to be the model, if you will, or where the model is taken from. I will sit enthroned where? On the mountain of Magda. Not Megiddo, but this Mame Ion Daleth. And it's called a Mount of Assembly. And then the, the, the Mount of Assembly is defined for us on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. Well, that doesn't help you one bit because now you're like, man, I didn't know what Megiddo was earlier. Now you're throwing Zaphon in the mix. What is Zaphon? Well, Siphon is how you would say it in Hebrew. It's the word that just means north, but it came to have a quality of its own the way that we would talk about the west or something like that or the south side, right? It truly is that geographic direction, but the use of the word carries with it more than geographic direction. It takes on an ethos of its own. So far, so good? Mount Zaphon 
in Canaanite mythology is where the Canaanite pantheon lives. You've heard of Mount Olympus? Mount Olympus is where the Greek pantheon lives. Well, Greek mythology isn't unique in this kind of way of thinking. In the Canaanite mythology, that is where their pantheon lived. And of course, the key god in Canaanite mythology, you know him, is Baal. All right? Baal is not the oldest god. He's not the father god, but he is the king who has been basically given all administration and all rule and all right. And he's the favored god of the Canaanites for a number of reasons. So it says, Isaiah says, okay, king of Babylon, you think you're something great, but you have fallen. You've been brought low. You said, I'll ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the throne of God himself on Mount Zaphon, if you will. Are you with me? All right? And he calls this the Mount of Assembly or Megadon, if you will, by a possible different approach. I wanted to make sure I didn't have another slide to add on there. So, what may be going on is some kind of reference to this. Not saying that it's literally going to be on Mount Zaphon, because it's a literal mountain. Just like Olympus is a literal mountain, right? Just like Zion is a literal mountain. It might not be meaning that literally on the mountain of assembly, meaning Zaphon, as Isaiah would put it, is where this battle is going to be. But it might be drawing on that same kind of mythological framework or idea, just like Megiddo is. Because we talked last time that no one, very few, are really expecting, if they think it's Mount Megiddo, that there is going to be an end-time battle literally on this site. I mean, there may be. I don't know. But that would be kind of a level of literalness with revelation that would be a bit surprising. He loves to draw on the images to apply them to principles. So it may be instead of drawing on the Megiddo idea that what he's doing, meaning John, is drawing on this collection of ideas where there is going to be a, the end time culmination battle is going to be in those places where people and empires and rulers have set themselves up to be like gods, if you will. It is going to be in the very hotbed places where the glory and grandeur of those who think they are gods, God is going to come and the end time battle is going to happen on their home turf in their capital city. Are you following me on this? which to me has a lot to suggest to it for Revelation, because from beginning to end, Revelation has all been about conflict and combat. The entire thing has been situated in warfare imagery. That the kingdoms of this world, and for these seven churches, specifically Rome, they have been warring against you. And there has been a dragon, the devil, behind them, animating them, empowering them, deceiving them, and deluding them to make this war against you and defeat you. And it's piling up, and it's layering up, just like layers in a tell, if you will. 
And this is going to continue to build until, as Zeppelin has told us, the levee breaks. And when that levee breaks, Christ is going to come like a thief in the night against all the kings of this world to finally defeat them. There is a hope, in other words, that is being extended out that God is going to come and finally overthrow all those who set themselves up and say in their hearts that they are above the stars of God, which the Roman Empire was certainly doing and the Roman imperial cult was certainly about. And not to say that this is just talking about the end of Rome. It is talking about the end of Rome. But Rome even is an example of all those who set themselves up against God and wage war against his people. And there is a day John is holding out with great hope, saying, no matter what you have to endure, no matter what you have to struggle through, God is going to come and throw them down. There's a lot more cool imagery going on, but I feel like it takes us into a land of more questions than answers for you, and I don't want to confuse it. What I'm most concerned with is, do you see what John is arguably doing with the imagery for the purpose of what message he's trying to bring you? Did, did you track all that? So, for those of you who are nodding your head, you'll probably go home and forget half of it, and that's okay. It really is. That's why we kind of keep relayering through this stuff. For those of you who are like, I am like maybe on a good day 3% with you with this, that's okay, too. Revelation is confusing. Why did I take all the time to go through it? Because Armageddon is a popular concept. And in the popular world, people do weird things with it. And they jump to all kinds of speculative conclusions about what it might be and what it might look like. I want to take you down the biblical trail just to kind of shake some of those lines of thinking to go look at their lines of thinking and to anchor you into a biblical worldview rather than a speculative pop culture worldview, but to leave it with the hope that fundamentally all it really is about is the idea of God or more specifically Christ coming again to finally bring victory over all the empires and evils of this world that are oppressing God's people. If you got that, you know what it's about. And then if you have to argue that with someone or discuss that with someone or help someone explain it, and you're like, oh, well, give me a call or I'll send you some notes or whatever and just do your best to kind of go through some of this. All right? That's the heart of it. I'm going to ask something really dumb. Um, any questions? Like, like, would you even know what to ask? Ask if, if right? It's, it's so okay. Should we? Ju- yeah, Ken. I think for Revelation, it's always both. I think Revelation is arguing that behind everything in the seen realm is always an unseen realm that is puppeteering behind it. But I wouldn't make it either or. I I do think there is a strong sense you're going to see through Revelation that we're not just talking 
something untethered from what we're seeing here, that what's happening in the unseen is going to affect what we're going to see here. Yeah. Yeah, Zach. Um, I was curious about, so you mentioned Mount Monsafen, you mentioned Mount Olympus, uh, and but those are real mountains, you said, as well as the, the religions believe that's where the gods live. Um, but like, it seems a little odd in a sense in the, that, because you could go there, you can go up to the top of it. And you don't see them. Yeah. Them. So I'm curious if you have any sense of how do people actually understand that? Yeah. Yeah, because it's easy to think that people in the past were dumb and ignorant, and they really weren't. And the best way to kind of prove it to yourself is find a time machine, go back there, and try to live like them for like one month and see if you could survive, right? We just value different areas of knowledge. Um, yeah, people back then would walk to the top of Mount Olympus, to the top of Mount Zaphon, and realize, I don't see like incarnate Baal sitting here. So it's more the idea that this is where God comes down to meet us. So you can go to the top of Mount Sinai. You're going to see Yahweh? You can go to the top of Mount Zion. And I'm talking in the temple era. Did you see Yahweh? Same kind of idea. So, so there would be a shrine. There would be a temple. There would be something like that as a representation of the God, but also kind of think of it like a lightning rod. This is where God meets. And by the way, um, Zael, uh, Baal is Zeus. If you ever really want to understand who Baal is, it is the exact same God, just in a different pantheon. He's the storm God, um, kind of the king God, if you will. Yeah. I'm not trying to like point fingers toward denominations or anything, but in light of everything we just studied over the last how many weeks, how does I've always wondered, how does the hyper-literal interpretation of this entire book persist? I mean, it's in, in the light of 2,000 years of history and knowledge of the Roman Empire, how people interacted with it, how, how, does, how does the hyper-literal interpretation of the book persist? I mean, it, I know that's a big question, but it's just... Yeah, it's a good one, though. So how does the hyper-literal approach to this exist, is Mike's question, if you heard it. And I'm going to give you the shortest, long answer that I can, and I'm going to give it a little bit of, of breathing room because it's such a fundamental question to not only how any of you are going to read the book of Revelation, period, but maybe how you'll read the Bible, and certainly what's been informing my approach to it. Here is the shortest, long answer I can give you. Throughout history, there are major philosophical moves. We are in an era arguably known as the postmodern era right now. The postmodern era follows what era philosophically would you think? The modern era. That's why it's called postmodern, right? The modern era is most notably marked by the Enlightenment. Who here has heard of the Enlightenment before? It really marks a philosophical approach to life in thinking that was, was, was really kind of rooted in anchor post-Renaissance, but arguably like, like 18th, 19th century, you know, mid-20th century, but 18th, 19th century is really its heyday. Thomas Jefferson is pure Enlightenment era. 
um, Immanuel Kant, if you've heard that name, is Pure Enlightenment Era. Here's what's significant in it, and if you know anything about Thomas Jefferson and his beliefs, you'll go, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that clicks. The Enlightenment era was really marked by the, the elevation of human reason and logic in all things. And you might go, that sounds pretty good. Let's be reasonable and logical. But everything is two-edged because the modern era was an approach to what we now call the pre-modern era, which was very much of a religious or God-oriented, theistic-oriented worldview. So in a pre-modern era, you would look at things that would kind of like happen and go, if I can't explain it, well, God did it, or the gods were behind it, um, or there's spiritual forces at work that are, that are orchestrating things. Well, the modern era comes along, and, and you know it's the scientific era as well, and they start to go, eh, I don't think so. I think that a lot of what people believed in the past was just them kind of getting confused or being ignorant or, or immature on some things or simple, simple in their thinking. So there's probably like modern or enlightened ways of understanding these ancient texts without throwing them out, namely being the Bible. So how does that work? Well, any reasonable, rational human being looks around and goes that miracles don't happen. We have a series of cause and effect. We have scientific approach to the world, dot, 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 right? So we know that there's a lot of value in the Bible. So you go look at like, well, when they walked on water, when Jesus walked on water, maybe it was low tide. When Jesus like cast out a demon, maybe the person just really had epilepsy. When they healed the sick or did these kinds of things, there's probably reasonable, rationalistic explanations behind it. And this took the world by storm. And it took biblical thinkers by storm. So you can read all the philosophers and the commentators of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, and basically their work is trying to turn the Bible from a supernatural history into a natural history. And so Thomas Jefferson, have you ever read the Jefferson Bible? Or are you familiar with it? Yeah, basically what he did is he took the Bible and he pulled out anything that was supernatural and turned it into a philosophical treatise or a guide on virtuous moral behavior. Um, you can go to Barnes & Noble or hop on Amazon and get the Jefferson Bible to this day because Jefferson was a deist. He believed, yeah, there's a God, but God is distant. God isn't involved in this world. Supernatural things just don't happen. Um, the point of what God does is to set up an ethical system for us to follow. Pure example of this line of thinking. Well, you can imagine what this would do to Orthodox Christian thinkers, right? Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, etc. So there was a backlash. And the backlash was among people who later came to be known fundamentalists. But fundamentalists just said, wait a minute, there's some fundamental truths that we can't throw out just because they don't fit in your modern rationalistic worldview. Here's what it means to be a fundamentalist, by the way, and they, they anchor themselves into five fundamentals. Do you believe that Jesus actually physically died and physically rose from the dead? Okay, do you believe that Jesus was actually born of the Virgin Mary, that he was actually a virgin birth. 
Do you believe, and, and I forget what all five are off the top of my head, but I think a third one was like, um, do you believe that Jesus Christ, actually by his death on the cross, affected a salvation and forgiveness for you in the sins of the world? And there's two more that are very much like it. I should know it. I can't believe I'm blanking on this, but... It wasn't even that strong how it was put out, though. Um, and let me hold that one aside. And you're sitting there going, that doesn't sound very radical, does it? Well, that's what it means to be a fundamentalist by their original choice of the term. No, we are going to hold on to the fundamental truths here. And it's funny, if you read the fundamentals, which was the book in like 1900 that defined them, um, they were all like old earth creationists. So even the idea of what a fundamentalist is today doesn't match up with the pejorative term fundamentalist as it got used or explained. They were fundamentalists because, heaven forbid, they believed that the supernatural was actually still pertinent and involved. So these literalistic views of the Bible came out of that. And this particular view of the Bible, Mike, where it takes Revelation very literalistically and chronologically, really comes around in the 1800s and finds its legs in the early 1900s because what I'm describing to you... Look, I, I, I don't want to make light of this. I don't want to sound... I don't want to Isaiah 14 this here on myself. But you're not going to know this stuff, right? Like, like from a casual read, this takes years of study to kind of learn this stuff that isn't available to the daily Bible reader. So the counter-reaction was, we're just going to take the Bible literally, which got distorted into literalistically, which means we don't even get all which is behind it. We can see how it can be abused and distorted and what people are doing with historic recreations and taking it off the deep end. We're just sticking to what it says in plain fashion. There's kind of a breath of fresh air in it when you're mired in that worldview, but it could at the same time lead by that insistent approach to, well, it says it's happening. We read books chronologically. It says that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Just take it at its word. That's, that's why. And that, that's, that's kind of what's behind it is guarding against the abuses on the other side and trying to stay true to the revelation no matter how improbable or shall we say, non-rational, it might feel. Follow? Well, I mean, I would, I would agree with you, but, and again, most of, most of evangelical scholarship today would also agree with you. And remember, evangelicalism is just fundamentalism by another name. All right? Most evangelical scholars are arguing exactly that, going, hmm, we know in the 18th, or rather in the 19th and early 20th century, this, this dispensationalism mindset has grown up, but it seems to have gone off the rails in its interpretive approach and undermined the very thing it's trying to uphold. And there's a debate within Christianity on that, of course, and it's a great debate. And uh, they're all brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but yeah, that's, that's the shortest, long answer 
that I can give to that, but that's what's standing behind some of this. Other questions? Okay, so let me chart the map a little bit and let you know where we are going. The next two weeks, there is no 9 o'clock discipleship hour. Next week is Palm Sunday. We do our big pilgrimage here, give you plenty of time to walk. So get here when you get here, but this ain't happening at 9. Two weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Their service is at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., and 10.30. So this resumes, excuse me, April 16th, three weeks from today. We're jumping into Revelation 17, and we are now what I would call on the tail end of Revelation. There's still a few chapters of work to get through, but they're all kind of a unit working together. With Revelation 16, you sort of see a culmination again. You see an Armageddon, and what Revelation 17 through 22 is really going to do is just spell out how's it going to work, what's it going to look like, how does this play, what do we expect, what do we do in the meantime, you get the idea. So we'll pick up there, probably let Revelation take us out through the end of May, give or take, we'll give it its due, whatever it needs, and uh, that's where things are at. So thanks for coming today, God bless, we'll see you later.